0: Good afternoon. We are thankful that you are with us this afternoon and look forward to a few moments of study here. Uh, We have a few uh, somewhat visitors in our midst, not exactly visitors, but uh, good to see a few with us today that aren't regularly. And we're thankful that you've come to our uh, opportunity to study here and to worship God. We are continuing a series this afternoon that we have been going through for several years now, sort of spread out on purpose on words and words in the Bible and how they matter. I've uh, brought up here before with me the books that I have. I had purchased copy, copies of both the devotional book and the study guide that go along with this uh, one-word study. Uh, it was put out, again, several years ago now, probably almost ten years ago, by a bunch of different brethren, uh, headed up by a few who got a lot of different writers, a lot of different preachers to write. Uh, there is a book that's more of a study guide for maybe a, a teacher or a preacher like myself that's going to be teaching the material. And then there's also a, a devotional book that has a, a five-day for five days, just the five days of the week, uh, work week there, kind of middle of the week, to, to have a devotional thought each day that go along with the words. I've taken that and kind of mixed it together to just allow us to take a look at some of these different words uh, just in one lesson. Uh, it's meant to be a weekly study, sort of a, I guess, a one-year study, if you will, 52 words. But we've spread it out just to one a month that allows us to do some other things and have other lessons uh, during that time. But uh, hopefully you picked up on a few of those. Sometimes, as we're going to talk about today, the the Hebrew words or the Greek words don't mean much to us. Sometimes they're very interesting and sort of give us a little insight into maybe, uh, you know, what the Bible is trying to tell us. Other times, it's just kind of the word that's there uh, that's translated that way. Uh, But we have hopefully gained some insight to what God is trying to tell us, how he wants us to live by looking at some of these different things. The word for today, this afternoon, is the word kingdom. The word kingdom. Now, we talked a little bit about the kingdom on Wednesday night. If you were in our auditorium class on Wednesday night, and some of you weren't for various reasons, uh, but we began just a a couple of weeks' study on the idea of, of dispensational premillennialism or premillennialism, talking a little bit about some of the things that go along with that. Sort of just a question that had come up, a suggestion of something to study, but with that, we took a look at this word kingdom. And what, how does the Bible use the word kingdom? Because, by the way, that is very important when it comes to that idea of premillennialism, what people say is going to hap- happen, in uh, time kind of things, the rapture and the antichrist and all these things that are used. Well, what are we talking about? Well, whether people really understand or know, they're caught up in a little bit about this idea of the kingdom and whether or not the kingdom has come and what that is trying to say. So we're gonna do a little bit of a study this afternoon and think about uh, some of the words that are used and what they're kind of trying to tell us and then the lesson, of course, will be yours. Now, if you have a bulletin in front of you and you'd like to fill in the blanks as we go along as our projectors uh, are still down, although I will give a brief update, I guess, T-Fry. Uh, Travis, let us know. He's been kind of our uh, uh, liaison going back and forth, I guess, between the company that, that's quoted some of the materials for us. We hope that maybe we'll have everything installed and up and running in the next couple of weeks, certainly within the next two or three weeks. So there's uh, some hope there, some excitement that we'll get those back and have those available. I've still been putting some blanks in the bulletin uh, that for you to kind of go along. Some people like to make notes that way. Uh, But this is one of those words, this is one of those lessons, I should say. Not only do I usually and frequently butcher the pronunciation of words, but much less that you would know how to spell them just for me trying to say them. So... If you have a bulletin in front of you, there are a couple of Hebrew words, and let me just give them to you. The first one uh, is spelled like this, M-A-M-E-L-A-K-A-H. So M-A-M-E-L-A-K-A-H. The second word is similar to it, M-A-L-E, like male, M-A-L-E-K-U-H. So you see how they're similar there in their original uh, format. The second word, uh, Malkuth, is kind of uh, these. Both of these words are translated "kingdom" in the Old Testament. Now, if you have your Bible, and I ask you to turn first of all to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. In the material that is presented in these uh, these studies, there are passages upon passages. For the different ways and different times that these words are used. And we certainly don't have time to go through all of them. But in the Old Testament, these two Hebrew words are translated uh, kingdom. The words are used to describe a a couple of different things, or I guess three. They're used to describe, first of all, the influence of kingdoms on the earth. So you take with that, this is a fleshly kind of idea, right? Right. First of all, it's used to describe the influence of kingdoms of the earth. So now we're talking about what? We're talking about, well, Babylon. We're talking about Assyria. These different kingdoms that we read about in the Old Testament. Secondly, they're used to describe the reality of the kingdom of Israel. The idea that this was a, a kingdom, if you will. Now, as we know, they didn't always have a king. In fact, the reference, if you're jotting down things, sometimes it may be of interest to you. You might be able to go back and study. But next to the reality of the kingdom of Israel, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 20, verses 18 and 20, talk about this idea of Israel. Now, at that point, Israel doesn't have a king. You think kingdom, you think, well, they've got to have a king, but that's not the case. At this time in Deuteronomy, as we've discussed Solomon, and as we had discussed even last week, King Ahab, just a little bit, Israel had kings, but another way these words are used is to talk about the reality of the kingdom of Israel. Of Israel. The third way is to describe God's sovereign rule over all the kingdoms in the Hebrew Bible. God's sovereign rule over all kingdoms in the Hebrew Bible. When we think about there, we think about this idea that, yes, God has, is sovereign. He has sovereign rule. And we, it's a great study to think about King Cyrus and others and how they were used by God, how years before God can talk about King Cyrus and the role that he would play. Uh, Just a few moments ago with our young people, we watched a video, a short video, over the books of Ezra and Nehemiah because we're getting ready to start a study on that in conjunction with the Last of Leaders program. And I showed them that video, and it talks about the kings who were over the kingdoms during this time, King Artaxerxes and other kings, King Cyrus, who were going to make the decree that they could go back to Jerusalem and build the temple, rebuild the temple, And rebuild the walls. God is sovereign over all of these kingdoms that are mentioned in the Bible. Now I ask you to turn to Psalm 145 verses 11 through 13. Let's notice it together before we make the point. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. You have to go back to verse 10 to notice there the works and the saints. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. And the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Now, that word that is used there, I think the word that is translated most often is the first word that was used there, Mamlaha. And that's the word that is translated most often as kingdom. If you were to look at an outline in front of you, a bulletin, I'll still give you the blanks to fill in and go along as we go through the lesson. Uh, but we appreciate so much uh, Travis and, and Brian and, and several others that have been here over the last few days. They've spent a lot of time uh, trying to get new things installed, and when that goes a little awry, trying to get other things working so that we have uh, the opportunity and the ability to to use the screens, uh, but that's still uh, ongoing, but we appreciate their work. We're thankful that you're here this morning. appreciate Brian leading us in singing, appreciate uh, the prayer, appreciate so much Gabe's uh, thoughts for us and even just sometimes reading a basic song that we've sung a lot many of you have sung like myself many times in your life but to go back and try to think about the lyrics especially as it pertains to our partaking the Lord's Supper uh, we're thankful to everyone that's had a part so far and to all of you who are with us we do have some visitors amongst us I don't know if there's anyone who it's their first time ever here but we're thankful that you've come our way this morning and let me just remind you one more time that we've got a full day that we'd love for you to stay and be a part of. We will have a lunch here in just a few moments, a sandwich uh, lunch that we have planned, and then our one thirty service will be slightly abbreviated, uh, but we will have our one thirty service, and then we will have the teen singing here at 2.30. I uh, look forward to having a good crowd, and if you've never been a part of that, we'd love for you to, to come back or certainly to again stay all day and, and enjoy that because it's very encouraging to see uh, a lot of young people together and to encourage ourselves with a time of song. And so we hope that you can be a part of any and all of that through the rest of the day. If you do have an outline in front of you, or if you were with us last week, you know that we began a series and many of you gave some encouraging words. I'm always appreciative of that, but we're going to begin studying some of the names of God. And I just decided today, especially since we'll have a bit of a shortened service at one thirty, that we'd go ahead and include another name this afternoon. We may not do this every service for the next few weeks. Uh, I think I shared with you last week as well in the lesson, there have been a couple uh, that are particularly exciting for me to think about that I really wanted to preach on. Uh, a preacher friend of mine, one of my good friends, Texted me this week and asked what I was preaching on. I told him, he said, what's your favorite one? What are you excited? And I I told him a couple that I had been looking forward to and then decided to expound this, to, to bring it out into several lessons. And I appreciate your kind words that many of you were encouraged by just the introduction last week. The importance of thinking about the idea that God's names tell us so much about him. They relate to us who he is. They tell us about his person. He relates to us as people. He shows us his promises through his names. And it's, it's going to be a great study. Let me also encourage you one more time as we begin that, that there may be some ways that we could look at this. Some people would say, well, they're not so much the names, quote unquote, the names of God as they are descriptions of God. And that's really what we want to be encouraged by, thinking about the way these names explain about God to us. We said last week, you use somebody's first name Sometimes when you get on a more comfortable basis, it may be a sir or a ma'am, it may be a a mister or a missus or something like that until you become familiar, until you know something about somebody. And so as we think about being Christians and serving the Most High God, it's important that we understand who he is. And we're going to learn that as we consider his names that he gives us through his inspired word. I mentioned to you that I was borrowing some outlines from another good friend of mine, and he had had about nine total and said that he felt like he got a little bit long through all of those. And so we're going to try to connect some of these and really bring them together. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me because we're going to try to cover a couple in just a short amount of time this morning. But I think it will be encouraging. The first name we're going to talk about is Elohim. Now, today, this is the first name in the first verse. If you have your outline, that's the beginning of what you have there. It's the first name in the first verse. Now, if you're making notes and you're filling out the outline, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and make an asterisk out beside of that, and you can write that it is the first word of the Bible. Now, some people would say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher, that's not right. You know, that's not what the Bible says, don't you? We said it's Genesis 1, 1, right? In the beginning, God but you know, if you look back to the original language, as we think about the Hebrew, and sometimes it's rearranged a little differently than it is in our English language, in the Hebrew language, the Bible begins with the word Elohim, with the word God. So it's the first name of God that's found in the Bible, the first name in the first verse, and we might even go so far as to say that it is the first word. What a better place to start than to consider this idea of Elohim. Elohim. Maybe the problem he' on there all right now That may be a great way to keep all y'all awake through this lesson, but I think you may also be scared through most of it as well. So that's all right. Uh, So Elohim is the first name of God that we read about in the Bible. If you have your outline there, you'd notice that it says that the word is the most often used name. It's used 2,500 times in the Bible. And again, the most often we might say. Now the only caveat there that we might kind of quibble over is some people, and we're going to come back and talk about this, but we talk about the name Yahweh or the name Jehovah. Some people would con- consider that to be God's name. We, and you're going to see as we go through some of these that there is Jehovah this or Jehovah So when we kind of back up from that and think about some different things, we're going to talk about this idea of Elohim being the most frequently used name of God in the Bible. 2,500 times as we think about it. It's actually used 32 times in Genesis chapter 1. Have you ever tried to memorize or look at Genesis chapter 1? But it is as we think about how many times the word God, Elohim, is used there. Now it's also the only plural name. It's also the only plural name for God. And of course, that seems to point toward the triune nature of God. We don't have time to get into a deep discussion of that this morning, but you're no doubt familiar with the idea of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So as you think about this triune nature of God or the Trinity, as people often say, this is the name that is the only plural name for God that is used in the Bible and seems to point towards that. Now, God starts off his revelation to us by explaining this idea, telling us that he is the creator and the sustainer of life. So as you have your notes there, you see two different lines in your notes in the outline that say Elohim. And the first one where it says Elohim has, if you want to make another note out to the side, we're going to talk about, first of all, Elohim and creation. or Excuse me, I messed that up. Elohim and eternity. And then the second one we're going to talk about is Elohim and creation. Elohim and eternity, first of all. In the beginning, right? Genesis begins with this idea. Many people may ask, where is it that God comes from? Have you ever got that question from a child? It's usually that one we kind of want to avoid sometimes because it's kind of hard to explain. You know, where did God come from? Many people ask that. But the Bible is very clear from the beginning that He has always been. In fact, that's the line there in your notes. Elohim has always existed. Now, if you're like me, we sit down and try to comprehend that and that's a bit of a brain scratcher, right? That's a bit of a head shaker. We could sit and spend all day. We could spend the rest of the day sitting right here trying to discuss that and understand that. And I think we still have trouble comprehending that Elohim has always existed. In fact, we know that this is encouraging to us because evolutionists can't even come up with the very first source for the very first atom, right? Even the the very most minuscule kind of thing in this world, in this environment, they can't come up with an answer because they don't have it. They start talking about primordial soup or they start talking about a Big Bang or all these things to explain how things existed. But even then, you notice that there's got to be a beginning for that primordial soup or that Big Bang. They can't figure it out. But Elohim has always existed. In fact, believers, as believers, as Christians, we don't even have to make something up. We don't even have to kind of keep fishing and trying to figure out what's going on because we just believe simply what God says. And Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is a simple, simple declaration that we already said there in your notes. And that is this idea that Elohim has always existed, he just simply is. We touched on this idea last week about the idea of God being the I am, not the has been, not the will be, but just simply the I am. And we sort of see this encouragement as well when it comes to this idea of Elohim and eternity. If God is, if God simply is, what's the significance? Because that's a simple statement to make, right? Somebody says God is. What does that mean? What's the significance of that kind of statement? Well, with god simply being if god is if god is everything then that reminds us that wrong can be made right that reminds us that with all the chaos that we see in the world around us that there can be order that there is hope for the hopeless that there is help for the helpless if god is then we have an answer for all the struggles that we face here i don't know how people do it sometimes they've got to feel hopeless They've got to feel helpless because they have nothing they can believe in. And can I tell you something that you already know? If you start relying on people on this earth, they're going to let you down. I don't care how much they love you. I don't care how close you are. Maybe you're close to your parents. Maybe you're not. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's your children. It's not. Whatever it might be, people are going to let you down. That's the nature of being human. But when God is, when He is Elohim and He is for all eternity, then we don't have to worry about that. God is is a significant statement because it reminds us that everything in life has purpose. Everything in life has meaning, both the good things that we face and the negative things that we face, both the good times and the bad times. Via Elohim, this idea God declares that for all eternity, He is, He always has been, and He always will be. So that's the idea of Elohim and eternity, but let's talk about Elohim and creation, If you have your outline there, the the next line down, Elohim created, right? Because that's the encouraging thing when we read Genesis chapter 1. He created out of nothing. Psalm 19 and verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God created, the word there, the Hebrew word is bara, B-A-R-A, created. But it carries more with this idea of made something. You see, we give our kids Plato, and they can make something. But if they didn't make it out of nothing. We gave them something to begin with. Again, even back to that idea of evolution. But God, bara, he created. And there's a Latin phrase that you may have heard before, this idea of ex nihilo, out of nothing. God breathed. God spoke and it was so. We sometimes feel that way as parents, maybe, or as adults when we can say that something needs to be done and it's accomplished. But it's so much more than that when God created out of nothing everything that we see around us. Boy, it's been a nice couple of days, hadn't it? Especially weather wise. That's what I mean. We think about this, the temperature in the air, and we see that we feel that fall is coming. And you know as well as I know that there's no better place in the world than to live in these valleys and around these mountains in just the next couple of months. It comes and it goes so fast, but it's so beautiful to think about this world that God created. and created out of nothing. When we think about Elohim, it is encouraging to know that He is the Creator. In fact, we are not here out of chance But we are here because God created us. He designed us. He's given us providence in which we can see Him working. That is the idea of Elohim that we read about in the Bible. Elohim means that He is the sovereign creator. He's the sovereign creator of all the things that are around us. And again, we might even say both the good and even the bad in the sense that we as humans sometimes succumb to our sinful nature and we submit to the sinful ways, and we sin. He is the sovereign Creator who existed prior to creation, and He spoke all of creation into existence. You know, some people will say, Preacher, are you asking us to choose faith over science? Of course not. God, Elohim, created science. I mean, everything it's such a great study to consider all of the, how things work together and the way that He created all of this. God made science, and it's not hurtful, it's not harmful for us to look around us and begin to connect things together, to simply see how he designed nature to work. Evolution is not science. Evolution doesn't even abide by the scientific nature, the scientific laws. If you were to talk to some scientists, they would probably give you something that doesn't connect with other things when you start trying to fit evolution in there. But creation can be observed, as we said. There are things that can be proven. But here's the thing. Can we repeat creation? Not in the way that God did, right? Again, I can sit here all day and try to breathe existence and life into things, but I can't do it. We can certainly make things out of what God has already given us, but God is the one who is the creator. So real quick, why is this important? Why should this even matter to us? Well, if God is, if He is Elohim, if He is for all of eternity and He is the Creator, then we're here by design. And if we're here by design, then life has purpose and it has meaning. You may have to go out to work. You may have to go to a job. You may have to do things that aren't the most exciting in life day in and day out, but you still have a purpose. Life still has meaning. You're still trying to obtain something as we think about this idea, of course, of trying to get to heaven. He created us. He created us accountable to Him. He created us under His authority. If He is not, we're saying if God is, but if He is not, then we're not accountable. We are just animals. We can just live however we want to live. And you probably can agree that maybe there's some pleasurable ways in that, just doing whatever we want to do. But we know that it's not going to bring anything but more sin and destruction and pain and suffering. If He is not... Then we're just animals struggling to survive. But you see, He is. And that's encouraging to think about. He is Elohim. If there is no Elohim, no eternal Creator, then there is no good and evil. There is no right and wrong. There is no truth or falsehood. There are no absolutes. There is no sin and no Savior. But if Elohim is, then He created everything, He has existed eternally. He tells us about sin. And he sent a Savior so that we could be saved from that sin. Genesis 1.1 is God telling us fundamentally who he is. He is Elohim. And that should be encouraging to us. But number two this morning, let's think secondly, moving on then to this idea of Adonai. Again, God's name is telling him so much about us. You may be familiar with Adonai, but it tells us that he is Lord of all. If you're filling in your blanks there. He is Lord of all. Now, Adonai is used frequently as well. It's used some 400 plus times in the Old Testament. 400 plus times in the Old Testament. And there's a Greek word, kurios, that's used some 680 times in the New Testament. So it's used frequently as well, this idea of Lord. Now let's think in the back half of this lesson about several things that encourage us as we think about what it means for God to be Lord or Adonai. There's four main things that we're going to notice there together. Then the lesson will be yours. Number one Adonai indicates ownership. Ownership. The first top hand left set of blanks there, if you're looking at a bulletin, Adonai indicates ownership. I am in God's possession. In fact, some of you have bought houses or maybe sold houses before, and and if you've done that, which a lot of us have probably as adults, there is nothing, right, more cumbersome than all that it takes to sign over a house or to buy a house and to go through that paperwork of signing your name what feels like 9,000 times in order to do that. It doesn't take 9,000 times, but when I become a Christian, in a similar way, I sign over the deed, the title deed of my life to God. I am owned by God. I am God's possession. Now, we live in a world where people don't want to think about that, right? They don't like to consider this idea of being owned by somebody. And and certainly we understand with the idea of master and slave and, and things like that, it can carry a real negative connotation. But the idea that I am, as a Christian, in God's possession is a wonderful and encouraging thing. Have you ever sung the song before? I am mine no more. And have you meant the words to it? I am mine no more. I belong to him. He is my owner. In fact, not only that, not only do I belong to God, but we take it a step further and we say all of my possessions belong to God. I'm simply a steward of what he has given me. Does that include our money? Sure it does. Does that include our stuff? Sure it does. Does that include our family? sure it does our children absolutely a steward is one who manages the affairs of another so we are simply managers of things that really belong to god something being in my possession does not make it mine right you think about maybe borrowing something just because i have something in my hands doesn't mean that it's mine it could be somebody else's the same thing is true with all of our stuff Just because we have it doesn't mean it's ours. It belongs to God who has blessed us with all good and perfect gifts. I have been entrusted with all of this stuff. Can we add in there? Not just the stuff, but our time, our words, our children, our family. All of this, we are simply good stewards and we have been entrusted to use it for His glory. I'm a steward of my time. Again, Ephesians 5:16. Paul would write there, "Be not unwise, but redeeming the time." You struggle with time management? Do you struggle with doing things in the right time or with your time? We're to be stewards of our time, not just our money only. We are though, of course, stewards of our money. We think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, and, and even again in verse 24, that we are not to lay up treasures here on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up treasure in heaven. We are stewards of our time. We're stewards of our money. We're stewards of our children. Think about Psalm 127 in verses 4 and 5. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty warrior or a mighty man, so are the children of are children of thy youth. Happy is the man that have a quiver full of them, that has a quiver full of them. We are to be good stewards of our children as well. This list could go on and on and on, but we recognize if God is Adonai, if he is Lord, then we are in his possession and all of our stuff then, we are simply stewards of the things that belong to him. Do you treat God that way? Is he Lord of you? Does he have ownership You know, we talk sometimes about this idea that we've got a bunch of water back here and we can make people wet. But when you talk about being baptized, becoming a Christian, there's supposed to be a change. There's supposed to be a change in your life. Again, the idea of signing over the deed, the title. You make a change and you become in the possession of God. Not just simply getting wet. Not just simply going through the motions. But truly making Him Lord. There's to be a change. a Change of ownership. Number two, Adonai indicates Lordship. Lordship. Have I surrendered everything to him? Have I surrendered everything to him as Lord? Lordship, of course, is all about authority. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20? Jesus gives the great commission, but how does he begin that? He begins by saying, All authority has been given to me. He has the authority. So if he is Lord, then Lordship is about that. You know, many people call Jesus Lord, but few people actually want to submit to his authority. The true test of whether or not a person, whether you belong to Jesus and whether you will be saved is whether or not you submit to his authority. That's why Jesus would say in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46 Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If you were with us, I preached on that a a couple of months ago, I believe it was. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? I I, I picture Jesus, I don't mean to be irreverent again, but, but I picture Jesus as frustrating as we can be sometimes as parents. Why are you calling me dad, but you're not going to do what I tell you to do? Why are you calling me mom, but you're not willing to listen to what I say? Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21, he makes that statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. You see, a lot of people today want to make excuses for their sin. And sometimes one of the things, we just talked about this in our college age and young adult class a few moments ago. But one thing that some people will do to excuse themselves is they'll say this idea, well, you know, they'll just judge me. You know, I feel too ashamed to come back because of what I've done. Maybe that's true for some people. Maybe there are some Christians over here who judge a little bit too much, and they kind of get worried about, and they are worried about what everybody's doing as opposed to themselves. But for many people, that's simply an excuse because they don't want to submit and they don't want to change. When we think about this idea of lordship, the true test of whether you belong to Jesus and will be saved is whether you submit to His authority. You see, we are wired for submission. Here's the thing I want to make the point real quick before we move on. We as humans are wired for submission to something. We are made to worship something. You may think, nah, not me. Again, I'm not submitting. I don't want anybody over me. But we all serve something. We will be a slave to sin. Or we will be a slave to Christ. We will be a slave to sin, or we will be a slave to righteousness, as Paul would write about in Romans chapter 6. James chapter 4 and verse 7 reminds us that it is mandatory if we want to be saved. James would write, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Lordship, if Adonai indicates lordship, lordship means that I will submit to his authority, period. Not trying to find a caveat, not trying to find a little wiggle room, but I will submit to what he has told me to do. That is Adonai, Lord. Number three, Adonai indicates discipleship. Of course, discipleship, you can write out beside the side there if you're making notes, but discipleship is followship. Notice the difference, not fellow, followship. That's what discipleship is. It means being a servant. By the way, that's not any different than what God has always required. Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me in my house, it's always been a matter of choice. It's always been about being a servant. Joshua says essentially there, once again, you will serve something. So will you serve God? Or will you serve the gods of your fathers over on the other side of the river? Just a couple of weeks ago in our vacation Bible school, in our lessons around that day, we talked about Elijah. What did Elijah say on Mount Carmel? How long will you go between two opinions? How long will you go between two sides? Because what you're essentially trying to do is straddle the fence and say you can do both, when in reality you're going to do one or the other. Adonai indicates discipleship or followership. Of course, with that, being a disciple or a servant means serving others as Jesus would. That certainly means people in the world, but it also means people right here in this room. People within this congregation. That we would be true servants. And here's the question. Am I a servant only when it's necessary? Am I a servant only when it's mandatory? When it's easy? When it's convenient? See, I look around this room and and I know... There are people here and there are others at other congregations and lots of people in the world who will sometimes sign up to do anything as long as it's not too hard or doesn't require too much of my time or something along those lines. If we are a servant, are we a servant only when it's easy, convenient, or mandatory? You remember again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew six thirty three, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Don't worry about all these other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. They'll come. God will take care of you, but you've got to be a servant. You've got to seek first his kingdom. Luke 13 24, strive to enter at the straight gate for many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Is that what we're striving to do? To be a servant? Number four, Adonai indicates relationship relationship. Think about God's covenant with His people. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, He reminds us that He will not leave us nor forsake us. When we think about His encouraging words, that our conduct, the Hebrew writer says, let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's great, God. That's a great comment. But what does that mean? The writer goes on to say, So that we may then boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I don't, didn't pick a particular movie out in my head, but maybe you've seen one of those movies where, where there's a, a, a character, the main character maybe, who's kind of always beat down on or, or bullied or picked on or whatever, and then somebody finally gives him that little, those few words of wisdom, that little nugget that it then encourages him or her to step up and to say, now with this strength I can go on. I can go forward. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Guess what that should do for us? It should strengthen us, remind us that we have a relationship and there is nothing that we can't do with Him on our side. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I don't need anybody else. I don't need anything else here. We're thankful for the relationship we have with fellow Christians, but it's our relationship with God. As God's covenant people, He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We notice as well that he will defend his people. Psalm 29 and verse 11. Psalm 29, 11, The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Here's your good scripture reference to go look up. The book of Revelation. We've been talking a little bit about it on Wednesday night. I know it seems confusing and a lot, but have you ever understood that the message is simply victory? Victory in Jesus. Victory in God. That's the message of Revelation, that He will defend His people. Yes, those people who were reading that early in the first century and the trials and tribulations they were going through, but yes, also to us today. God will never leave us. He will defend us. Our total trust can be placed in Him knowing that He is faithful. God is Elohim. God is Adonai. He is Creator. He is Sustainer. He is Lord. You see, the question this morning as we begin then to conclude this lesson is that lip service is not enough. We absolutely, some Sundays depending on the songs that we sing, we sit here in these pews and we say, Lord. We say, Lord, Lord. We sing songs calling Him Lord, but the question is, is that just lip service or is it total life surrender? Do you recognize that this indicates ownership and lordship, discipleship and a relationship with Him? There is not an inch of any aspect of your life of which God does not say that is mine. Now, if you're like me, that sounds a bit intrusive, and that sounds a little uncomfortable, right? Even sometimes so much as we have our relationships and our families and our spouses, we sometimes, even in marriage, even though we say that it's all one and we're now united, we still sometimes have things that we say, well, that's mine, right? Right? whether it be a room or or whether it be a section of the house or this area, we say, that's that's mine. You know, that's off limits. That just belongs to dad or to, to mom or whatever. It's not so with God. There's no dark corner. There's no closet. There is nothing that we can say does not belong to Him. The question this morning is, do you belong to Him? Yes, certainly in an aspect, in one way He controls it all, it all belongs to Him whether or not you name Him Lord. But would you this morning consider naming him as Lord? Would you consider submitting to his authority? Do you follow him? Are you his child? Can you pray to him and call him Adonai? Or do you hesitate? Because you know, deep down inside, you know it all belongs to him, but you're having a little trouble giving it up because it's yours. And you don't want to think that it all belongs to him, that he truly is Lord of all. It is amazing what and I can do when we totally surrender to him. This morning, as we're about to sing this song of encouragement, there may be someone in this audience that has never named the name of God, that's never named the name of Christ. Put on Christ in baptism to have your sins washed away. We'll be singing in just a moment to encourage you that you would become a Christian, that you would totally submit to him. Make him God and Father, make him Lord. If you'd like to know more about that, we would study with you as soon as possible so that you can make that most important decision in this life, to totally submit to Him, totally submit to a Savior, have your sins washed away, to be added to the church by the Lord, and to begin to live faithfully. But the possibility also exists, that there's someone here this morning who is a child of God, but maybe you've wandered away, maybe there's sin in your life that's separating you from God, that you can't fully say, Lord. We're thankful for a good eldership, as has already been said this morning, that one of our elders will be coming forward in just a moment that would love to pray with you and for you. But even beyond that, we've got a group of people who love you, who care for you, who want to encourage you in any way possible. See, God is Lord, but he also, Jesus, left behind his church that we can encourage one another even through the singing of a song such as this, that if you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'd love to encourage you even now as we stand together and as we sing. Good afternoon, if you have your Bibles, would you be turning to the 91st Psalm, the 91st Psalm, verses 1 and 2, and we'll begin there in just a moment. Appreciate again your attendance this afternoon to the visitors who are amongst us. We look forward to a good time together in just a few moments with an addition of a lot of young people and singing a praises to God, and just thankful for the time that we'll get to enjoy there and even the time we'll be able to enjoy here in, uh, in a few moments in our study I don't know if I need to do an earthquake test up here and jump up and down for a few minutes. or uh, There would be an encouragement. You can see Faith if you have any questions, but there would be an encouragement to come early to services because she caught me and Travis up here earlier, and we were trying to test it together, and we were hopping around. And so if you come early, you get some extra entertainment before services start. But uh, you never know what will take place. But we appreciate, again, all those who have had a part in trying to get... Uh, Our stuff up and running here, all of our slides and projectors and your patience as we're uh, trying to deal with that. But uh, still, we can certainly study together and look forward to this time. As we have been thinking now for a couple of weeks and even already today about the names of God and really, again, the description of God that we're given to try to understand who he is, uh, who he was in a sense and who he will be, what he has done for us, what he's done for people for many, many years uh, is of great encouragement. Uh, we talk a lot about Romans fifteen four and other passages that remind us that well, those things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. That this is, as we go back through the Old Testament, sometimes it's heavy, uh, sometimes it's deep, sometimes we may not understand. People look back and say, well, well God must like killing people. You know, he allow the Israelite uh, people to kill all of those folks and these kinds of things. They have all these questions, but really it's encouraging to think about uh, what went on. It's challenging to think about what went on and the way that God interacted with his people, but it can certainly be beneficial for us to consider. And so as we think about the names of God, uh, we're talking about a lot of different things, but in particular some of these Old Testament passages where he is introducing himself, even as we talked about this morning from the very beginning, introducing himself to us, that we can have a relationship with him because that's the goal. That's really all that matters, of course. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to family and children, when it comes to our jobs and all these things, they're important. We need to hold them down. Hopefully, you know, we we love our family and we have a good relationship, but it's our relationship with God that matters. And we need to have that relationship and it needs to be strengthened. And this is one way. That it can. You know, we've said already, especially last week in our in- introduction, that we go by many names. For many of us, holding the, the title of father, but also told, holding the, wife, the title, excuse me, of husband. Uh, you may be brother or uncle or all these names. Grandparents uh, have various names and, and go by different, you know, names that their grandchildren call them. Reminded me of a story, you may have heard it before, a preacher illustration of a little girl who was telling people that she was Mr. Smith's daughter? You know, that's just the way that she was kind of introducing herself, Mr. Smith's daughter. Finally, her mother told her, said, Don't say that, sweetie. You know, just say, My name is Jane Smith. So one day the new preacher came in and she met the new preacher and he said, Aren't you Mr. Smith's daughter? And she replied and said, Well, I thought I was, but mom told me not to tell anyone that I was Mr. Smith's daughter. So she just simply needed to learn, of course, that we can go by multiple names. That's fine. Uh, you know, I, I get tickled sometimes, uh, I think Hannah, my Hannah picked on me not too long ago, you know, some preachers, sometimes they call their wife, you know, sister, you know, sister Danley. And she said, that makes me feel like I'm older or something, you know, call, you call me that from the pulpit or something, you know? So, but we do go by that sometimes brother or sister, not only in our family, but even our spiritual family. So as you look at Psalm 91 verses one and two, this is an interesting passage because there are actually four names of God that are used here in two verses, Psalm 91, 1 and 2, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Now, let's start at the back of that. Let's start at the end where we just finished. The word there found in verse number 2 for my God is Elohim. If you've been with us, we've already talked about that today. And you're familiar with that idea. We touched on the idea of Elohim dealing with creation. God as creator. You back up through verse number 2 there, you see the word Lord. There's a good chance in your Bible that it is all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. You may be familiar with that, and we'll get to that, God be willing, in the next couple of weeks. But that is the idea of Jehovah or Yahweh, the tetragrammaton that is used there. And and there's, again, we'll get into that study later, but that's another word that is used there. Back up to the end of verse number 1, and you see the phrase Almighty. You may may be familiar with that phrase because that is Shaddai. We sometimes sing a song called El Shaddai, that is Almighty. So already in this verse, again going backwards, we've seen Elohim Jehovah Shaddai, but at the very beginning, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High is our name for this afternoon. El Elyon is the word that's there, and that is the Most High. High. So if you have your notes there or a bulletin in front of you and you're filling in as we go along, El Elyon is the word, the most high God. God's names tell us much about him and he is the most high. So this afternoon, what we want to do, and we should have enough time, I'll try not to talk too fast as I'm sometimes accused of, uh, but not go too fast through these. But we can spend a few moments thinking about El Elyon and the idea of God most We're going to come back to it in a few moments, but we could really go to Daniel chapter 4 and preach this sermon. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 4 that we meet, or don't meet there, but learn more about King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is humbled. Remember, he becomes like an animal, so to speak, and it's all so that he would know that God is the God most high, El Elyon. And that is, it's used many times in that that chapter alone, Daniel chapter 4. But we're going to think about four things in particular. I think it's what you should have in front of you if you do have a bulletin. But there are four things we learn about this idea of God being the most high God. Number one, we learn about his position. These will all start with the letter P. But we learn about his position. He is absolutely sovereign. You know, Job, in in the book of Job, Job 42 in verse 2, says that I know that you can do everything. No purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's the New King James Version there. Job 42 and verse 2. He is absolutely sovereign. There's the question that's asked in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We call it a rhetorical question, I think, right? Is that what we say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is absolutely not. But that's the question that is posed there for us to consider. Also in Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 26. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus himself says essentially with God, all things are possible. He is absolutely sovereign. The idea of sovereignty or sovereign is, is having all authority or all power. So he in his position is absolutely sovereign. You know, it reminds me of another preacher story uh, that a preacher one time preached on sovereignty, on the sovereignty of God and the idea that man's has stewardship over all of God's possessions, kind of like we touched on this morning, right? God is the God most high. He has total sovereignty. We are simply stewards of what we've been blessed with. After he preached this lesson on the sovereignty of God and the stewardship of man, the preacher had a a wealthy, we might even call him a prideful, wealthy member who had him over and he took him outside his house and he showed him the mountainside and the hillside and all this property. And this member was saying, do you know that all of this is mine? And do you mean to tell me by what you said in your lesson that all of this land that I own is not mine? And the wise preacher looked at him and said, well, come back and ask me in a 100 years if it's all yours or not safe to say they were probably older, maybe not that old, but still needless to say in a hundred years, neither one of them would have been there and it would have been somebody else's land to be steward over because it certainly all belongs to God. God is sovereign over all things, but we might break that down just a little bit more. Say number one, he is sovereign over creation. We already talked about Genesis chapter one and verse one in the beginning, God, bara the word there, created. He created everything. He spoke it out of nothing into existence, and he is sovereign over creation. In Psalm 83, the 83rd Psalm, in verse number 18, the psalmist would write, and say, Thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, again, another word we'll talk about, art the most high, that's that same phrase used there, El Elyon, the most high over all the earth. God is absolutely sovereign, but number one, over creation, we might say. Number two, we might say that he is sovereign over the curse on creation. And what's the curse on creation? Well, it's, it's sin. We think about the fact that in Romans chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18, Romans 5, 17 18, a whole, whole large context here that we just don't have time to get into. But uh, again, a lengthy passage, but Romans 5, 17 and 18. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, that's Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. You see, God is sovereign over the curse on creation as well, which is sin. We, because of the sin of Adam coming into the world, we are all cursed in a sense. But also by the death of one, the death of Christ, we all have that opportunity for righteousness and salvation. But it is, isn't it interesting, it's kind of true, Adam's sin doesn't curse us all that we can't have an opportunity, right? We're not just condemned by what Adam did, but we're also not just saved by what Christ did, period. We've got to be obedient. We're not condemned simply by what Adam did, but we're not also saved by what Christ did without being obedient, accepting that free gift and the grace of God. But God is sovereign over creation, also over the curse on creation. He's also sovereign, number three, over circumstances. The 46th Psalm, if you have your Bible. Psalm 46 in verses 1 through 3. We quoted verse 1 this morning towards the end of our lesson. Psalm 46, 1 and 3. 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. We say it quite often, but we are by no means the first people on this earth to face trials. Our trials might be different. We might be worried about nuclear war or our country or, or other things that take over and diseases, but as the verse says here, there have been lots of other things that people have worried about. There have been lots of other things that have been of concern, but yet the Lord, our God, is our refuge and strength. He is sovereign over our circumstances. That doesn't mean things are perfect. Look, I wish I could stand here this afternoon and tell you that things would be great. I wish in some ways that I could take it all away and just make you, you know, not have to face anything. But God knows better than me. He knows that we have to face those things. That temptation, that sin, those struggles cause us to long for a better place. And even though we face them, God is sovereign over our circumstances. But we might even say number four under this first point, his position that he is sovereign over, we might call it contrived. Gods. We've been using C words here in this point, but over-contrived gods. You know Psalm 97, 97 in verse 9? Excuse me, not Psalm 97 in verse 9. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all gods. It's a song that we sometimes sing with our young people. Thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth, thou art exalted far above all all gods, the contrived gods that people try to come up with. And let me say again, as we usually say with idolatry, we will make it about little, small, golden statues, but it is so much more than that when anything, anything that's in the place of God is an idol and is a little g God that we can put in his spot to have the first place in our lives. But God is sovereign over-contrived gods as well. And you know the passages. Even the demons know who is sovereign. Think about a couple of three passages very quickly from the New Testament. Think about Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? Again, that's Mark chapter 5 and verse 7 because as we look at these different instances where Jesus would heal demon-possessed people, Quite often, those people speaking, being demon-possessed, would call Jesus who he was. They understood that he was sovereign. And there in verse 7, this demon-possessed man, again, Mark 5, cries out, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High? There's our word, there's our phrase, Most High God. Even in Acts chapter 16 and verse 17, do you remember that before Paul and Silas are in prison, the reason they are is they heal a demon-possessed young lady. And the thing that is said, that she says before all this comes about, is that these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show show unto us the way of salvation. So a great, great study there, as you can look at the New Testament and realize that even the demons know who is sovereign. El Elyon reminds us that he, of his position. Number two, it reminds us of his promises. His promises. Three things here under this. Number one, when we realize about his promises, we realize that he protects his own. Psalm 21 and verse number seven. The king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. We understand that God protects his own. For us in the New Testament, we think about Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Once again, I wish I could promise you that things would be great all the time, but I can promise you, as God promises, that he will protect his own. Again, we look back through the Old Testament and we see that time and time again. Doesn't mean people don't suffer, but he does protect his own. That's one of the promises. Number two, we would recognize that he provides for his own. He provides for his own. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 is one of the places where Moses is talking about that he fed thee, that God fed thee to the people with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Remember, Jesus is going to quote this as the devil is tempting him. He's going to quote this passage, but the point is that God protects, or protects his own and he provides for his own. Do you know that? I mean, we quote that all the time at our house, right? Every time uh, somebody's just eating bread only at the meal or whatever, our picky eaters, and we say, man, can't live by bread alone, you know? Do you understand the context there? It's kind of jokingly, of course, in that us saying it at home, but in context, it's because God does provide. It's his promises. We see in Genesis chapter 14 and verses 17 through 24, do you remember the occasion there where Lot was kidnapped? And so as Abraham and Abram is going to go back and he's going to sort of collect Lot, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings forth the bread and the wine in verse 18. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. So the king of Sodom then here is in the picture and said unto Abraham, Give me the persons, the people. You give me the people that you took and you can take back the goods to thyself. Notice in verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Because it's not about what you've done for me, it's about what God has done for me. Because God provides for his own. Not only does he protect, not only does he provide, but we might also say, thirdly here under his promises, that he pastors his own. He is the shepherd. I know we don't need to go over it, but the 23rd Psalm, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Another story that I've heard before of the young boy that was saying, trying to quote, memorize, quote the 23rd Psalm, and he said, the Lord is my shepherd, and I can't remember the rest, but that's pretty good right there, right? The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know about it because he pastors his own. He will shepherd us. He will care for us. So, from this name, El Elyon, we think about his position and his promises. Number three, we think about the fact that he purifies. He purifies. First of all, he hinders sin, as we think about this. He hinders sin. Psalm 47, in verse 2, For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. Can I suggest to you that when I say he hinders sin, I'm in no means saying that he will not allow us to sin. No, we still have free will, but it should terrify us to violate his will. That's a fact. Psalm 47 again, verse 2, the Lord most high is terrible. The fear of God should be in us, not simply in the cowering kind of scared way, but in the reverent way that we should be terrified to violate his will. Psalm 78, Psalm 78 and verse 35. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. Go down to verse 56 of Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the most high God and kept not his testimonies. How scary it is when we violate his will. Once again, kind of coming forward to the New Testament, we think about Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. This, this is one of those passages for me that really can, can bother me. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. You know, isn't it interesting that we usually stop off at verse 24 and 25 there? But you continue on to verse ten or chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, if we violate his will, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then the Hebrew writer lays it out very plainly in verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You see, he hinders sin. He doesn't want us to sin. He prevents it, not in the way that he stops us from sinning. We have free will, but we should not want to continue to violate his will. It should be terrifying for us. So he purifies in the way that he hinders sin. But number two, he purifies in the way that he crushes our pride. I told you we'd come back to it. We won't spend a long time. But again, uh, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. And boy, is he humbled in such a way to realize that there is a God most high, El Elyon, who reigns on high. And there's a great application there for us as well. Hosea chapter 5 and verse 5, And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. And then chapter 6, verse 5, Therefore I have, have I hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. You see, he crushes pride and tries to get us as Christians to be clothed with humility. First Peter chapter one, excuse me, First Peter chapter five, verses five and six: "Be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble." So, not only as our El Elyon does He pure, when we think about His position. And his promises, we realize he also purifies. And then finally, this afternoon, we realize that he is to be praised. He is to be praised. Think about all throughout Scripture. We won't take the time to go over all of these. But Job praised El Elyon. Abraham praised El Elyon. David praised the God Most High. The angels praised the God Most High. And here's the question as we wrap this up. Do you praise El Elyon as the God most high? He is absolutely sovereign. He looks after his own. He purifies. And as such, this last point here, he is to be praised and worshiped for who he is. There is no other God. There's no God like Jehovah. There is no God that should be praised as the most high God, but the God of heaven, El Elyon. One more passage here, if you still have your Bible open, Colossians chapter two, verses nine and ten. Colossians two nine and ten. When we think about the New Testament, when we think about the New Covenant, we live, of course, in the Christian age, the Christian dispensation, and it is Christ who is our El Elyon in a sense. Colossians two, beginning in verse nine. For in Him, that's in Christ, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete. In him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, God most high, El Elion, wants to be your God today. We've taken a very brief look at this, but the question is will you submit to him? We've touched on Elohim, that he is the creator, he is the sustainer. We have even touched on this idea of Adonai and being Lord, he's the most high God. Have you submitted to him? The song that we're about to sing in just a moment is a song of encouragement that if you need to make a change, you would consider doing so. You see, as we said this morning in our lesson, you will submit to someone or something. You'll be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You will submit to the Most High God or you will submit to the flesh and the worldly ways of this world. We know that on that day every knee shall bow. We know that one day all will recognize that there is a Most High God, even as Nebuchadnezzar gives us a great picture of that in Daniel chapter 4. If I had to give you a little bit of homework, that would be the challenge. Maybe go back and review King Nebuchadnezzar. Do you recall there at the beginning of that story that he's looking out, as that man did in the illustration I gave earlier? He's looking out over his majestic gardens and everything he has done, and he's saying, as we sometimes say, self Let's take it easy. Let's enjoy all these things that I have done by my own hand. And God humbles him. You have an opportunity right now to be humbled before it's too late, before it's everlasting too late. Do you need to become a Christian? Here in this moment, we would study with you. We would pray with you. We'd show you what the Bible has to say about submitting to Christ in baptism, the purpose of baptism, being saved, being, having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ for the remission of sins. It's at that time that you will be added to the church by the Lord, and you can begin to live faithfully. If you're here today, this afternoon, and you've not been submitting to Him, now is the time to make a change, to submit once again to the Most High, following after Him. Begin this week anew. Recommit yourself to Him, or maybe make something known before the audience that is gathered here that we can pray with you and for you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.